Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Yeah, for everybody on the West Coast, I think summer's upon us forever. It's hit. Today is, today was 98, and it peaked at 6 o'clock, <laughs> so it's uh, it's starting to cool down, so I ran the AC for about an hour in here, because if I leave it on, like everybody that's heard the shows in the past, it's a in the background, so I'm trying not to have that in the background, so hopefully it won't be too hot under this hot light, but uh, we'll see. Anyway, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. If you're coming in and watching for the first time, let me get this adjusted here. If you're coming in and watching for the first time on YouTube, please subscribe. There's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and a magnifying glass, and he's our mascot, and it would be nice to get extra subscribers. I'd appreciate it. Um, I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California. And we also have people in Nevada, Oregon, and Washington and Hawaii. And the great thing about our California team is that there's so many of us that uh, no matter what county you're in, we can get people to you, right? And we don't charge for our services. We're here just to help and educate and help you with your what you think might be a paranormal issue. And we're not out looking just for ghosts. We're looking for logical explanations and stuff. So after we've Lifted your lifted your carpet, looked under your plants and all that stuff. Then, then we make a decision as to whether or not it's it's a, it's a, you know it's something natural, man-made, or something we can't explain. And then we go from there. Okay, next Saturday I will be teaching a ghost hunting 101 class at 11 a.m. Pacific. Anybody interested in that can uh, cruise on over to the California Haunts Meetup page and sign on up. I'll teach you how to ghost hunt, even if you're a recreational ghost hunter. I'll teach you how to ghost hunt for that. Okay, you know, you don't have to be a hardcore investigator like like my team to do that. I can teach you how to do that. You know, you go to say you go to a haunted hotel or something and you're there with your family or you're there with your friends and you want to do some ghost hunting and, and see if you can get some evidence. No biggie. I'll show you how to do that. I'll show you how to work around the noises. I've, I've done EVP sessions over bars that were active and people and singing karaoke and things like that. And there's there's ways to do that. Okay, so come on over, sign up for the class and I'll show you how to do that. All right, our guest tonight, I'm really excited. It's UFO Alien Night for us. Randall Fitzgerald is going to be, is, is coming on to talk with us about UFOs. We've got, high, you know, talking hybrids. We're talking all kinds of stuff tonight. So I'm looking, really looking forward to this. So uh, instead of me telling you about this guest, you know how I am. I am going to go ahead and get him in and let him tell you about himself. Okay? Give me a second. Hello, sir. Hi, Charlotte. <laughs> How you doing? No, oh, I'm undecided. How about you? Ah, it's too hot for me to worry about that right now. This <laughs> I know I'm undecided. I was sitting here right up until the last few seconds going, do I leave the AC on? Should I turn it off and take my chances? <laughs> you know, so I'm taking my chances. If you see the water, if you see just a, you know, meltdown to nothing like the, like the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz, you know why? Because <laughs> it gets hot fast, you know? So tell me about you. Of where to start? Do you want the, the beginning, the middle, or the end? Do it all. We got time. <laughs> well, that may take some time. <laughs> My background is as a journalist, uh, much as is the case with you. Mm -hmm. And I started out in newspapers at the age of 19 in eastern Texas, working for a daily newspaper. Went to journalism school, uh, got out of journalism school, and moved to Washington, D.C., and I arrived uh, the week that Nixon resigned as president in 1974 in August and became an investigative reporter for a syndicated newspaper columnist, Jack Anderson. And I spent uh, time uh, doing investigative reporting, of, uh, started writing books uh, in the mid-70s, and I'm dating myself uh, seriously here. Uh, and I got into magazines. Of, I started writing for Reader's Digest. Uh, I became a, 
a staff writer and then a roving editor for Reader's Digest uh, over a 20-year period. So I was traveling a lot. Uh, went to 48 of the 50 states on assignments in many foreign countries. And uh, so I was uh, also writing books at the same time. Uh, I had started a, a magazine of my own in the late 70s called Second Look. And it was a magazine that was devoted to three areas of inquiry. One was the origins of civilization. Uh, the other was the nature of consciousness. And the third area, a speculative area, was the search for other life in the universe. So we published for a couple of years, of, never got beyond 10,000 subscribers. It was all direct mail. And then I got off into other subjects, uh, wrote a few books uh, in the UFO area and then books uh, in many other areas. And so every 20 years or so, Charlotte, uh, I have been updating and expanding uh, a book that came out in 1979 called The Complete Book of Extraterrestrial Encounters, which was a compendium uh, up through 1979 of all the books or all the major books. Uh, a summary of all of the books in the realm of ancient astronauts and UFOs and contactees and abductees and um, the search for the scientific search for other life in the universe. And then uh, 20 years later or so, late 90s, I updated the book, uh, included all the books that have been published in the previous 20 years um, and expanded the book. And now I've done it again for the third time. So it, it's a large book. It's over <clears throat> 200,000 words, uh, but it does include just about everything, every major theory and piece of evidence uh, in the uh, alien visitation field uh, that has appeared in the last 100 years. Wow. That, that's a lot of research, a lot of years involved, too. Yes. What do you, what do you think is, going, is actually going on with this whole alien thing? As a journalist, uh, I've always put myself uh, directly in the middle. Uh, I've tried to be as objective and fair as I can be in my own investigations and in my summaries of the work uh, and theories and evidence of other writers and theorists. And so I've always placed myself in between the believers and the skeptics. Uh, I never felt really uh, allied with either camp. Uh, I got to know some of the, the primary uh, believers and skeptics on each side. Uh, for instance, um, J. Allen Hynek, the astronomer who had been associated with Project Blue Book, uh, who started out as a skeptic and then evolved into a, a visitation believer. Uh, I got to know him in the mid-70s. I got to know uh, Phil Class, who was the primary skeptic and debunker, who was an editor with Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine. And so I enjoyed being with these people with varying points of view, but I could never really find myself in a position to where I had strong beliefs one way or the other. Uh, I was content to be in the gray area and just let the, the facts uh, go where um, they would pop up. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. In, in, in your study, in, in your research, and all this, what, um, what, what, what common thing do you see happening? You know, with these abductions. Well, I've known a lot of abductees, and I've known a lot of contactees, uh, people who felt that they were in communication with an extraterrestrial intelligence, um, but hadn't been abducted. And I don't find any unanimity in their points of view or their experiences. It's such a wide range of a phenomenon which has evolved over time. Now, originally in the 50s, we just had contactees for the most part. There weren't any publicly known abductees. And so the contactees generally had a prevailing theme, which was that aliens were here to warn us that we were going to destroy ourselves as a species because of our development of nuclear weapons. 
and that nuclear power would eventually uh, destroy nature and destroy uh, the human species. And the visitors were here uh, using the contactees uh, as a channel or conduit uh, to warn all of us before it was too late. But of course, then in the, the 60s, um, the first big case uh, that was well known was the Betty and Barney Hill abduction uh, case uh, in the Northeast. And a, a book was written by John Fuller, um, and that book uh, was a bestseller. Uh, and then as a result, that sort of opened the door to other people coming forward who maybe uh, would have been stigmatized uh, previously. And then Bud Hopkins uh, wrote a series uh, of books about uh, various abductees. Uh, and then uh, hypnotic regression became the thing to do to pry out from the subconscious uh, these various uh, stories uh, of the abductions that these people felt that uh, they had experienced. So I always have studied and, and have interacted with contactees and abductees, but uh, much as with the UFO phenomenon in general, I, I didn't come to any firm conclusions. I felt that most of these people were sincere um, mm -hmm. and legitimate. I, I, I never had a sense uh, that it, it was hoaxing uh, as many of the skeptics and debunkers uh, initially tried to allege. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, Charlotte never had enough of a sense of exactly what was happening and why uh, that I could leave my journalist role long enough uh, to, to really latch on to any particular theory. But you wrote these books, and I can see why. I mean, once you get hooked into something like that, and you start doing research on it, and you start doing stories. You just, as a journalist, you want more and more because you're trying to figure. You're, you're trying to make sense of here. You know, yes. that's how I got into ghost hunting when things started happening at my house. You know, and I was working in a in, in a city that, that that was haunted. You know, the buildings were haunted. It was just so hard for me to wrap my head around it because what people don't realize is as journalists, we look, we're like police officers in a lot of ways. Because when we go interview people, you're looking at body language, you're looking at all that stuff to see, you know, if they're uneasy, if they're, if, if they're, if they're looking all over the place, you know, to see if you're being lied to. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what we do. Mm -hmm. So I've never um, had the chance to talk to any alien abductees. Well, I have now, you know, doing this show. But mm -hmm. I mean, one-on-one, -on -one, like for a book or, or an article. So I didn't really get that chance to, to really size them up like, like, like a journalist would do. And it's, it's good to hear from you that, you know, your feelings about that, 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 they, that they all seem legit. Yeah. Well, I won't say that they all seem legit. Okay. Uh, certainly, you know, most of those that I encountered seem sincere. Uh, I do oh, think okay. there was potential for some uh, to be delusional. Uh, there was potential for some uh, to have psychotic breaks as a result of some uh, traumatic triggers uh, in their life. Uh, there, there are a variety of possible uh, reasons uh, that someone could have. Well, let me give you an example. My, my brother passed away well, a year and a half ago from COVID, a younger brother. And he, he was nine years younger, and we really didn't grow up together. And... Uh, he was always fascinated with the alien visitation subject, as I had been since uh, I was a teenager. Uh -huh. uh, but my brother Jerry felt that he had been abducted uh, and had uh, an alien visitation uh, experience. So one night as he was driving alone uh, down a country road in the eastern part of Texas, and he underwent uh, hypnotic regression, he uh, underwent uh, sodium pentothal and a whole number of realm of tests that were done by psychiatrists uh, and psychologists. And he could never firmly grasp all of the details of what he felt had happened to him. And at the very end, um, he, he felt that there was a possibility in his case that uh, he had created all of this in his subconscious uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, he had undergone a lot of emotional turmoil uh, in uh, early in life. And so 
even with my own brother uh, and the experience I had with him and how he tried to interpret what had happened to him, uh, it, it was a big question mark. Uh, and there was a complexity there that I could sense in a lot of the other abductees that I encountered. Do you think that hypnosis, you know, uh, regression helps in these cases? As you probably know, there, there's been a long-standing debate about that. Even, even among the alien visitation uh, believers, uh, there has been a debate as to whether or not the regressive hypnosis uh, plants memories, enhance, enhances fantasy proneness, or whether it is a recovery mechanism that uh, divulges uh, the truth of what truly transpired. Uh, I go back and forth with it again as a journalist. I don't have a firm foundation of opinion uh, about it. I tried to read what uh, people involved in regressive hypnosis uh, have written. And, and in fact, in my book, I cover a lot of these individuals uh, and their arguments. Uh, and then I, on the other hand, I have a whole section of the book on skeptics. Uh, and debunkers and, and their theories and evidence. And I've tried to cover them from the standpoint of why they feel that we are in a fantasy-prone culture as a result of uh, science fiction uh, being pervasive uh, in, in both literature and in movies and so forth. And, and that, that sort of implanting uh, in the collective and individual subconscious has occurred culturally uh, over time, and that could, in fact, amplify uh, experiences that we can't categorize, that are unknown to us, uh, that occur, and then get promoted uh, in, in the media in various ways. So, uh, again, I, I hate to go back to my journalist um, right, role, right. but um, it, it is the way that I've tried to navigate this entire fascinating field. Absolutely. Oh, I understand completely. What is one of the what's one of the cases that you've written about that's, that 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 has stood out to you? Well, I spent a lot of time investigating the Arizona Lights. Uh, this was probably the biggest mass sighting UFO event in U.S. history, which occurred on the night of March thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven. Uh, it's sometimes called the Phoenix Lights, but that uh, is somewhat misleading because uh, the event occurred across the entire state of Arizona that night. At the time, uh, I was the roving editor of Reader's Digest, uh, and I got an assignment. Uh, I asked for the assignment uh, to go to Arizona after this event occurred uh, to try to find out what had happened. And I ended up spending quite a few months and uh, interviewed 50 direct witnesses uh, to the events that night, uh, although there were many hundreds of witnesses, many of whom never came forward. And I was looking for three categories of witnesses, uh, the people who were on the ground that night and were looking up at the Hale-Bopp comet uh, in the northern sky, and then saw these five lights approaching uh, just below the Hillbop Comet, and looked at the lights through binoculars. I, I wanted to interview them uh, because I thought, you know, there's a, a good uh, category of witnesses. The second category of witnesses were uh, pilots, commercial pilots, who were in the sky that night uh, flying from Phoenix uh, to Las Vegas, which is a heavily traveled uh, air corridor. And I wanted to find as many of those who were flying that night as possible who might have seen the formation of the lights. And the third category of witnesses were the air traffic controllers uh, that were on duty at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport that night, as well as at other airports throughout the state of Arizona and the state of Nevada. And I found witnesses in all three of those categories. And there were a number of things, as I describe in great detail uh, in my book, uh, that stood out for me uh, as contradictions. For instance, uh, in the northern Arizona rural areas, people who looked at the lights through binoculars uh, claimed uh, 
that they saw five independent lights on five small planes, that it wasn't a single object. As the lights got closer and lower to the ground uh, above the suburbs of the city of Phoenix, I interviewed witnesses who claimed that when they observed the lights visually, that these lights were all connected to one single solid object. Uh, And then as the lights, uh, the formation of lights, so went toward the southern part of Arizona, heading toward Tucson, I interviewed other people who swore again that these were five independent lights on five independent planes. And then I interviewed some pilots with America West who were flying that night, three of them. Mm-hmm. And they claimed that they were in radio communication with the formation of lights because they were puzzled about these lights that were just above them in the sky uh, and why they were flying at night in formation along an interstate highway mm-hmm. with their landing lights on. And the landing lights pointed down toward the ground, uh, which was a violation of FAA rules. <clears throat> Apparently, according to these pilots, they asked the formation of lights, who are you? Where are you going? Where are you headed? And someone claiming to be a lead pilot in that formation of lights responded, uh, we are snowbirds. Now, snowbirds are a Canadian right. air performance team that perform sometimes uh, in the winter, and but usually uh, in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a lead there to follow. I got in touch with the Canadian snowbirds in Saskatchewan. Uh, they claimed on the record that none of their pilots were in Arizona that night. So then the question became, well, if these were actually pilots, why were they masquerading uh, as this air performance team when they weren't? Uh, and again, much as these pilots in the, the Air America crew uh, were pointing out, why were the landing lights in the, the nose of these planes on and pointed down toward the ground? These pilots were obviously trying to draw attention to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were seeing that there were many thousands of people out that night looking at the Hale-Bopp comet, which was very bright in the night sky. Uh, and the lights were coming from the direction of the Hellbop Comet. But if you plot on a map the direction that those lights were coming from, uh, you can draw a straight line to Area 51 in Nevada. Uh, And I started following up on a, a theory that I was developing that maybe what was happening that night was a psychological warfare experiment on the part of the US military. Because when the lights disappeared that night, um, they were going past the city of Tucson toward the border with Mexico. Now, what is on near the border uh, just before you get into Mexico? It is a military base, uh, Fort Wahushka. (laughs) And Fort Wahushka is where psychological warfare training occurs for all the military services. And there is a a landing field there. And apparently the five planes landed there at this psychological warfare training field. So I started asking myself, well, why would the military want to conduct a psychological warfare experiment? I mean, what could they have been doing technologically Uh, that would make people uh, in the suburbs of Phoenix believe that it was a solid object, that it was a solid object with these five lights, not separate planes. And the only thing I could come up with was holographic technology, that uh, somehow the planes uh, and the lights were able to uh, create a holographic image Mm -hmm. uh, that made it appear as if it was a solid uh, object. So I go into great detail in the book based on all of the many 
dozens of interviews that I did, mm -hmm. uh, trying to rule out all the other possibilities. You know, there's the extraterrestrial hypothesis that it was a, a one single solid object. Well, if you accept that, you have to throw out all the other uh, people who saw five individual planes and looked at the formation with binoculars. Uh, but if you say they were just five individual planes, uh, then you have to throw out the testimony of all those many people uh, in Phoenix that claim they saw a solid object. So uh, trying to fit all of the evidence into a hypothesis uh, proved to be a challenge. And the only one I could come up with that would fit was a psychological warfare exercise. You know, I was just thinking too that if, if you go into a cave and they turn the lights out, and you stand there for a few minutes. You could swear up and down. You could see your hand in front of your face. Mm -hmm. Because your mind will matrix that hand. And thinking about what you're saying, which makes a lot of sense with these planes, is that as they're looking up at these planes in the sky and they're in formation, the mind is going to play that trick as well. And they will see a big black object mm -hmm. around, these, around the lights. Mm-hmm. Well, you're engaged in Charlotte in critical thinking, which is what we journalists are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be evaluating. And, you know, this is the old saying that there are two sides to every story. I, I've always been a believer that there are more than two sides to every story. There are multiple sides, depending on how many witnesses uh, there are. And that was certainly true with the Arizona Lights sighting because the, there were so many hundreds of witnesses and, the, and they saw so many different things in the sky. So I suspect you were right about this cave analogy. Uh, it would make perfect sense to me using critical thinking. Well, I even remember I, I live probably nine blocks from an Air Force base that does repair on airplanes or used to do repair. And I remember when the self fighters would come in for repair at night and what they looked like, mm -hmm. you know, they were creepy to look at. And when mm -hmm. I hear these reports and I hate to say it because, you know, I, I know people that, that swear that they, they saw something triangular in the sky, you know, and all this. But when I hear these reports of what these people see, it reminds me exactly of what I used to see flying over my house, you know, coming in for a landing mm -hmm. because they talk about, like, you know, the lights being what, what seemed like on, on the tip of, of the triangle. Because when they bring those things, yeah, they're trying to come in stealth, so they're not putting any of those lights pointing at the ground or anything like that. All you're seeing are the running lights on the side. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. so, again, you know, that's where I question that part. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are a lot, you know, there are some logical explanations out there for this stuff. And that doesn't in any way make us debunkers or, right. or skeptics. Uh, I mean, we're not dis dismissing all the other evidence uh, mm -hmm. that would indicate that something very legitimate as a phenomenon is occurring. Mm -hmm. It's just that we have to always apply our critical thinking skills yeah. to every yeah. situation in order to evaluate all the possibilities. Right, right, right. What do you think of the abduction stories themselves you know, when you hear about people that have been taken aboard? Mm -hmm. experimented on. What's your opinion mm -hmm. on that? Well, there was a podiatrist, uh, Dr. Roger Lear, who specialized in removing alleged uh, implants uh, from abductees. And he wrote several books, uh, which I summarize in my own book, summarizes uh, theories and evidence. And the sort of items um, that were extracted surgically from these abductees run the gamut. I mean, there were there were small pieces of metal, um, there were wooden small objects, uh, there, there were uh, minerals, uh, go down the list. Uh, and he could never make sense of a pattern in all of these different uh, objects. Um, I mean, the only conclusion he could reach really was that the if these were tracking devices implanted by aliens for reasons we don't understand, uh, for some experimentation reasons, uh, then 
these were common terrestrial objects that were being used uh, to track. Uh, and, you know, maybe they were infused with some sort of energy at some level that uh, enabled them to, to be tracking devices uh, that would fit the technology, uh, seem presumably more advanced technology that the alien visitors uh, would have. So I use him as an example, Dr. Roger Lear, who, who's deceased now, but who specialized uh, in the physical evidence mm -hmm. in the aftermath of these abductions uh, to demonstrate how even in that realm, uh, there weren't enough uh, evidentiary patterns uh, mm -hmm. to really come to solid conclusions about what was being done and why. Absolutely. And I was just thinking of the stories of the single women that end up pregnant. You may claim that mm -hmm. it came from, you know, the aliens. When I also, when I look at that, I, I think of false pregnancy. It happens in animals all the time. It oh, happens. yes. And I yes. hate to say it, it happens in dogs. I'm not trying to mm -hmm. say, you know, have dog dog stuff inside but it does happen so i mean there's always that little bit i'm not and again i'm not trying to debunk i'm just trying to look at this mm -hmm. from the big picture it could be false pregnancies could be yes and, and again that word debunk it's an interesting word i have met so many debunkers uh, over the years and let's talk about them for just a moment sure. um, or your audience may start thinking that i'm trying to play the role of a debunker. What I found was with most of the debunkers, they call themselves skeptics, mm -hmm. but they weren't really skeptics uh, with the Webster's dictionary definition of a, a skeptic being someone who fair-mindedly weighs all of the evidence uh, and, and raises questions in an in open, uh, fair-minded sort of way. Instead, what I found was that debunkers were quite often uh, mean-spirited uh, and they came from a point of view that was alien visitation is not improbable it's impossible mm -hmm. and when you come from that point of view uh, as you know in connection with ghost or poltergeist or any of the other uh, realm of the paranormal if you come from it from the standpoint that it's impossible you narrow your opportunities, first of all, to experience it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, rationality can put a, a real damper uh, on a, an experience that has a, an emotional basis. Uh, but secondly, uh, in trying to demean others who have claimed to have these experiences that you doubt, uh, then you run the risk of character assassination. Uh -huh. And I found a lot of the debunkers engaged in that, uh, in their books and in their various writings, uh, that, that they would uh, claim that uh, these people were lacking integrity uh, who were telling these stories. Uh, and I found that uh, disturbing. Uh, uh -huh. I found that whole pattern uh, as disturbing as at the other extreme uh, with uh, the camp of the believers. Um, gullibility. I always found gullibility uh, naivete to be uh, rather disturbing as well. Again, trying to apply uh, critical thinking uh, to um, each point of view and all the theories and all of the evidence. Uh, so again, back to this theme of being sort of in the middle and trying to, to navigate the gray area. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking when you were saying that there's a story of the the Japanese version of the, of, the, of the Bermuda Triangle and how a boat full of scientists who didn't believe and the disappearances disappeared. They don't know what happened to them. I was thinking about us being journalists and, and, and the poor aliens, if they sucked us up onto the ship, because we'd be out there with our notepads, just, just jotting down, you know, everything and everything being kept up here to, to come back. You know, it's just right. And also <laughs> questioning the nature of our experience in the yeah. midst of the experience. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me, but what's the point of that? And why are we, you know, but, you know, I, I don't discount any of it because I've had experience. I, I've lost time on the freeway. Hmm. I lost like an hour. I, my friend of mine and I lost like an hour and a half on the freeway, ended up in another town. Don't know how, don't know why. So I don't know. But 
yeah, like I said, there's there's stuff like a lot like like I said, like the Alaskan Triangle when they talk about those triangle sp spacecraft that make me think. No, I think it's I think they're stealth fighters, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But that's what makes a journalist a journalist because we do look at everything like that. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. we we have open minds, but you know, there's there's that part of us that's gonna look for every side of the story and and, and try and make sense out of it. Yes, but our brains, our minds are not so open that our brains ooze out. Right. We try to maintain some semblance of, you know, not just dignity, but some semblance of fair-minded rationality. Yeah. But, but in so doing, yeah, it's a fine line. You know, as you know from being a journalist, that we are often telling each other and playing the role that we need to be fair-minded but we can never be objective we're human mm -hmm. beings we're always going to have our biases and our prejudices at some level even mm -hmm. at the subconscious level we can identify uh, but our role needs to be that of being as fair-minded as possible at all times well you know i'm sure you probably work too for editors because there's you know there's some editors that are very or some newspapers even that that are that lean too much one way mm -hmm. you know i've been told to back off story you know working to back off stories mm -hmm. because it'll bother a friend of the publisher or about you know or somebody who knows the publisher you know and then yeah Mm, that actually is a theme uh, in, in alien <laughs> in the mirror from the standpoint uh, of if we look institutionally not just at the news media but at uh, at government and all right. aspects of government, the various government agencies. I mean, all of these bureaucrats uh, have officials that are in charge of them, much like we have our editors in, in the news media. Uh, and those institutional biases that begin to show up are, are interesting because over time, uh, then you find an institutional need uh, that is uh, uh, put forward to uh, verify their point of view, uh, much as some editors want to verify uh, uh, news media's point of view, uh, whether it's political or you know, whatever. Uh, yesterday, as you probably know, um, the U.S. Congress, the House Intelligence uh, Subcommittee, uh, held the first hearings in 50 years on the subject of UFOs. Now they're called um, unidentified aerial phenomena rather than yeah. unidentified flying objects. Uh, and two Pentagon officials uh, appeared uh, before the members of Congress. And and I it lasted an hour and a half, and I watched it uh, live uh, streaming uh, as it was uh, happening. And there were a number of aspects of it that I found uh, of interest. Uh, first of all, I was happy after 50 years that finally the U.S. Congress was paying attention to the subject uh -huh. of alien visitation, which it was really forced to do because of news media coverage uh, beginning in 2017 with the New York Times front page article uh, about the USS Nimitz off the coast of California and the UFOs that were tracked by the Navy pilots uh, and were documented on various uh, ship sensors. Uh, what these two Pentagon officials were sort of placed in the position of having to do is to tell the members of Congress uh, for the first time, it was an admission by the military for the first time publicly, uh, that we don't know what's happening. There are unidentified sightings. We don't know how to explain them. And furthermore, for the first time, we're asking our own military employees to come forward with mm -hmm. similar sorts of cases. Uh, and transparency needs to uh, rule this subject area uh, for the first time. So that was a relief. But in response to questions from the members of Congress uh, about specific cases uh, that were brought up, uh, for instance, the Malmstrom uh, Air Force Base case many years ago where uh, UFOs uh, apparently uh, disarmed 
10 nuclear missiles. You know, this has become a famous case. It's repeated in numerous books that I summarize in my own book. Uh, and in response, these two Pentagon officials acted like they had never heard of this, never heard this case. Uh, another case uh, was mentioned uh, involving um, Admiral Wilson, uh, the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, who had allegedly uh, admitted in private to some UFO researchers um, that the military, the Pentagon, um, had some residue from crashed UFOs that had been kept uh, for decades uh, and that the residue uh, had been turned over to military contractors and subcontractors for analysis. And this analysis had been ongoing for decades. But in this memo uh, written by uh, Dr. Eric Davis, uh, an astrophysicist who I happen to know, uh, in this memo, um, Davis recounts how Wilson claimed that when he tried to get access mm -hmm. uh, to this UFO debris or residue, uh, he was denied uh, access. Uh, he couldn't get near it. Uh, uh, it was like the contractors and subcontractors not being military, not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, had created a, a layers of secrecy uh, on what should be an open book for the public sort mm -hmm. of historic findings. Uh, and so Wilson admitted, Admiral Wilson, that he had been frustrated by this. And then the memo eventually was leaked. Uh, and when asked, these two Pentagon officials in the hearing before Congress yesterday uh, claimed that they had no idea, never heard of this. So uh, that gives me pause for concern that the two Pentagon officials that are supposedly in charge of this new openness and disclosure about unidentified aerial phenomena uh, apparently are so compartmentalized that they have no idea what has happened in this field historically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think, um, you know, with that in mind, maybe they do know what's going on and they're just not saying it, you know, because I mean, this stuff, goes way back i mean i mean there's there's room there's rumors that go way back you know that that, there, that there's even presidents that that are involved and in, in know that, that all this is going on mm -hmm. well beginning with jimmy carter when he was governor of georgia in the late 70s uh, saw a ufo and filed a report on it and then when he became a president uh, he pursued through some of his of mid-level employees uh, trying to find out the truth and came up against a, a brick wall of claims in, in his uh, writing since then. He talks uh, about how frustrated uh, he became that he basically gave up. And I think a lot of presidents who do try to pursue finding out the, the truth uh, do eventually give up because um, it's rather frustrating uh, uh, to spend all of this uh, time and energy uh, being the chief executive officer of the entire nation uh, and still not get the sort of respect uh, that you know, one would think uh, would go with the office. Going back to your to the, to the Phoenix Lights now, you, you mentioned Area 51. What do you know about Area 51? I haven't been there. Uh, I know people that have uh, former uh, defense contractors who I've known and former CIA officials uh, who I've known. And, and you know, the, the people that visit there generally don't see what truly goes on there. <laughs> they, they get their superficial tour and they get their superficial demonstrations and one friend of mine in particular who had been with um, Boeing aircraft, Boeing had a number of projects, um, secret projects that were ongoing uh, at Area 51. And he talked to me in terms of, of how you know, he had a top secret clearance, but it wasn't uh, a high enough clearance to where he could have asked the sort of questions that were necessary to, to scrape beneath the, the surface. So the entire 
Area 51 is so cloaked uh, in all these various layers of need-to-know secrecy uh, that it's very difficult to find out what's going on. Uh, I do summarize in Alien in the Mirror a lot of the books that have been written about Area 51, and I go over all of the various theories uh, and the, the evidence uh, based on uh, these various uh, writers of uh, Annie Jacobson, for instance, is one in particular who did a very good book about Area 51, and she had some uh, inside sources, uh, former longtime employees at Area 51, uh, who were somewhat revealing, more revealing than I've seen uh, anywhere else. I remember I was in Europe years ago. I'm, I'm old now. <laughs> I was like probably 11 or 12, and I remember they had their, their version of Independence Day. And um, the Russians had a helicopter that could do um, flips, you know, loops and stuff. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing like that in the United States at, at all at that time. And my father, who had worked at Boeing for his early life, would have known these, you know, would have known that they were trying to come up with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, when people talk, again, going back to military aircraft that people might be seeing at night, you know, especially in Area 51 you know, that connection, that they could be testing stuff like that that people don't have any clue about at all. And that's what people are seeing at night because you're not you're not going to take that stuff out during the day for everybody and their brother to see. You're going to take it out at night. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it, it was true of the SR-71 Blackbird, the, yeah. the high-performance, you know, flying up to 90,000 feet uh, plane, uh, which was... Uh, flying in the 60s uh, and the 70s was flying out of Area 51 mm -hmm. uh, and would do so at night. And it caused many UFO sightings, especially among commercial airline pilots uh, who would see something zoom by them, above them. And uh, it, it would be this black blob um, blur. Um, so, yes, that was always happening, which actually ended up, unfortunately, um, resulting uh, in the Air Force's Project Blue Book uh, and the CIA's on, uh, the CIA actually in many ways controlled the Air Force investigation of UFOs. Uh, and both agencies have since claimed that when they engaged in disinformation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when they tried to uh, disparage uh, UFOs, and tried to explain them as natural phenomena. What they were generally trying to do is to cover up the existence of these secret uh, programs uh, because they didn't want the Soviets to know what we had developed and exactly. what we were testing and where we were testing and so forth. So the excuse was always, we've got to deceive the American public in order to uh -huh. deceive the Soviets. Uh -huh. Well, unfortunately, that was a double-edged sword uh, because quite often uh, what it resulted in was that legitimate sightings that were not top secret high performance aircraft um, but were unknowns true unknowns uh, that were reported by credible witnesses of military commercial pilots and so forth uh, whenever they uh, were told by the cia and by the air force to, to stay quiet that their reputations mm -hmm. would suffer uh, this was an example of a long-running disinformation campaign that unfortunately uh, the uh, military and intelligence agencies um, clung to uh, right up until fairly recently. See, now everything comes full circle. That takes you back to the Phoenix Lights now. Mm -hmm. what, what you were talking about earlier about the test, you know, uh, with, the, with the planes. Mm-hmm. You yes. know where they're doing stuff, and you know how do we know they're they're, they're still not doing you know, that? They're still doing stuff. Like my dad said, you know, we've at that point in time, he'd never seen a, a copter able to do you know loops and stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we if somebody had seen that copter in the United States at night doing loops, right away they they would have reported it as as, as a UFO mm -hmm. because it hadn't been seen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on with the military that we're so unaware of that, that who knows? And it's so convoluted now, like you say, what's the real truth? 
you know, are, are there actually, you know, th- th- these things coming from other planets or is it just us creating this stuff? Mm-hmm. One of the themes that I've developed in the book um, by way of a pattern mm-hmm. from the hundreds of books that I've read and summarized uh, is the extent to which human consciousness is interacting with this phenomenon, whatever the phenomenon is. And by the phenomenon, I'm including everything, not just uh, alien visitation and UFOs, but uh, I'm including the whole gauntlet of paranormal effects, uh, ghosts of poltergeist uh, go down the list, because all of this to me seems uh, at the pattern level to be examples of human consciousness either triggering these events in various ways or being the true source of the nature of all of these events and and the incidents uh, that occur. And it's like the old cliche about the tree falling in the woods. If there's there's no one around to hear the tree fall, is it really falling? Well, it's the same with observers. I believe that this phenomenon, again, speaking broadly about what it is, it, it needs human consciousness in order to exist. Uh, it needs human consciousness and the interaction with it in order to be acknowledged uh, in, in order to be amplified, uh-huh. uh, in order to uh, give us an awareness that perhaps what we're working with here is the next phase of the evolution of human consciousness. Uh-huh. Well, look at poltergeist activity. I did a case a few years ago where this couple would get into fights at night. They would go to bed and stuff would start happening around the house. Mm-hmm. And it was unresolved, you know, it was because they were going to bed unresolved, they were both angry that the energy was coming off the wife mm-hmm. and causing this stuff while she was sleeping. Yes. Mm. You know, so it's like you say, you know, we that we could very well, you know, be be manifesting this, this stuff ourselves and mm-hmm. not realize it. And, and like the very young children, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, probably in many cases yourself, uh, I mean, it's legend uh, that young children uh, have pin-up emotions, and then the release of those emotions uh, result in poltergeist activity uh, in in homes. Uh, And then childhood abuse uh, can be a trigger. And uh, it gets back again to what I discuss in the book about examples of where people who are on meditation retreats, uh, Dr. Stephen Greer is a good example. He, for the last few decades, has had these UFO summoning meditation retreats out in the desert of Southern California uh, and Arizona, in in which uh, people spend uh, a number of nights uh, together going through a special meditation, trying to summon lights in the sky and orbs and uh, entities and so forth. And I've interviewed a number of these people that have been on these retreats and uh, quite often they seem successful at certainly summoning something that they don't understand mm-hmm. and that they can't identify. And that's an example of human consciousness of interacting uh, and, and in fact triggering. Well, my friends, the Constantinos were studying at the time of their deaths. They were studying to see if these EVPs that ghost hunters get are created by their minds. Mm-hmm. And they were, and they, and I think they had manifested at least one or two people probably call me with, with horrible names now and stuff, but I think they at least manifested once or twice created ghosts that answered their questions. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Charlotte. I, I watch all these programs, you know, Ghost Adventures and so forth. And um, there are a number of aspects of, of what you know, occurs pattern wise uh, mm-hmm. in all of these uh, programs that I find of interest. And, and one is that when they are doing these EVPs, that it's usually a response in the language of the ghost hunter, mm-hmm. you know, not in Spanish or in French or some other language. I mean, occasionally that might have happened, but for the most part, uh, this is a a type of channeling that occurs in the language, 
i.e. the consciousness of the ghost hunter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the mind is a lot more powerful than people think it is. You yes. know, like you say, yeah. who knows, like, like that group trying to manifest the UFOs or whatever. I mean, you get enough of those minds together and maybe, who knows, maybe they can create this thing to come down, you know. Mm -hmm. Because well, that's this what is this is an ancient spiritual tradition uh, right. in buddhism tibetan buddhism uh, it's called the topas t-u-l-p-a-s and the mm -hmm. topas are, are mind energy uh, that uh, materializes uh, mm -hmm. based on uh, the hopes the dreams the wishes the prayers and so forth uh, of enough uh, meditators so these ideas have been around for a long time sure sure absolutely um do you think that you're ever that they're ever gonna that the government's ever gonna come clean with what they know? I don't think that uh, there is enough coordination within the various agencies of government uh, for this to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, it conceivably could. A, a lot of barriers are going to have to be lowered because. Each agency, I'll give you some examples. Sure. It historically appears as if naval intelligence uh, and the Department of Navy has been much more forthcoming about UFOs uh, and uh, unidentified aerial phenomena uh, than the U.S. Air Force. Uh, as exemplified by the USS Nimitz of encounter in, in 2004, revealed in the 2017 New York Times article, as well as numerous other uh, encounters. Uh, for instance, yesterday before Congress, you know, one of the two Pentagon officials was the deputy director of naval intelligence who was appearing. It wasn't the Air Force that was appearing. Uh, the Air Force historically in this country has always been much more compartmentalized and less open on this subject, more inclined to disinformation than the U.S. Navy for some reason. Uh, I investigated a case uh, that goes back to the 1950s uh, involving a, a woman uh, in southern Maine by the name of Frances Swan, who was a channeler. And she channeled what she thought was an extraterrestrial intelligence. And she happened to live near a rear admiral, a retired rear admiral, uh, Knowles was his name. And he took an interest in her and began having sessions uh, with her when she would channel using automatic writing, uh, this entity that she called um, Afa. Uh, and Afa was supposedly an extraterrestrial uh, that wanted to warn uh, planet Earth about the perils of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and Admiral Knowles would ask Francis Swan technical questions, like uh, science questions. And uh, every once in a while, apparently, Francis Swan was able to answer a question that Earth scientists could verify. So uh, this intrigued the Office of Naval Intelligence, and they started sending uh, some of their intelligence officers uh, over the course of uh, five years in the 1950s to interview Francis Swan. So I learned about this in, in the 1970s when I had my magazine, Second Look, and, and I went and visited Francis Swan, who was still alive. And she had kept meticulous notes about all of these encounters with these uh, U.S. Navy intelligence officers. And I was able to photocopy all of these notes and, and do an in-depth article about uh, how the U.S. Navy, uh, even in the 1950s, was much more open to this subject than the U.S. Um, Air Force. Uh, and I recount this in great detail in my book uh, because a number of strange things happened that involved the CIA and uh, a sighting outside the window of a CIA office in downtown Washington, D.C. I ended up interviewing some of the CIA and naval intelligence officers who had had the sighting. Uh, but long and short of it is, that, you know, back to your question about openness uh, and the government, uh, I could see individual agencies of government like the U.S. Navy uh, being much more revealing uh, than the U.S. Air Force uh, or than the National Security Agency, the eavesdropping uh, agency, 
so I would see it as happening, this disclosure as being piecemeal rather than in a holistic sort of way. Absolutely. So what's next for you? Well, I have many other subjects of interest to me. Uh, I wrote a book back in 2004 called Lucky You, and it's about intuitive luck in games of chance and the intersection between um, intuition, uh, highly developed intuition uh, into the paranormal realm intuition uh, and playing games of chance and why some people are much luckier than other people. So I've always wanted to do uh, a sequel to that book, which I have completed and hope to have published uh, later this summer. It'll be called The Tao of Luck. Awesome. Awesome. How can people find you? Oh, alieninthemirror.com. Uh, I have a website uh, which features, uh, of course, uh, access to this book. Uh, the foreword to the book was written by um, Jacques Vallée, uh, the legendary uh, scientist who's written dozens of books on UFOs and was featured in the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg's film as the the French scientist. Um, well, that was Jacques Vallée. He was the model for uh, that character uh, played by Francis Truffaut and Close Encounters. And so you'll find uh, Jacques' uh, forward, Alien in the Mirror, on the Alien in the Mirror website, uh, along with other information about my various books. Fantastic. So uh, you're standing on the strip in Las Vegas, and there's other guys that have books titled like yours, you know, similar. How do you get people to read your book? Ah, uh, well, I'm not very good at marketing. I, I must <laughs> say, uh, maybe that's a journalistic um, drawback of, you know, maybe we just aren't inclined to right. have that uh, <laughs> as a focus in, in our repertoire. Um, so I have to rely on uh, others. Um, but the others that I would rely on to spread the word, uh, I think it's just a matter of pointing out that intuition, again, getting back to this theme of human consciousness, uh, that intuition is a trait that, that we all have the capacity for uh, to varying degrees. And some people have it inherently and naturally. Other people need to just develop it over time. And that involves uh, different types of meditation exercises. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, sir. I just appreciate it. I, Surely, I, it's been a great pleasure. You're uh, delightful. Uh, you, you have a, an inquisitive mind, and uh, I quite appreciate that. All right. Well, you have a good evening, sir. And uh, hopefully we can get you on again when, when you get your new book out. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. All right, sir. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that was great. Uh, I love talking to fellow journalists. It's, it's a blast for me. Anyway, tomorrow, oh my gosh, tomorrow, the fun keeps coming, you know, the, the hits keep coming. And tomorrow, we're going to be talking about Howard Hughes. Did Howard Hughes really, did Howard Hughes really live in that hotel? Well, our, our guest tomorrow, Mark Music, doesn't think so. He's uh, run into a woman who claims to have married the actual Howard Hughes. And they lived elsewhere. And there was a double living in the motel or living in the hotel. And there's a lot of details of that, like eye color changes and all kinds of stuff that Howard Hughes had paid for to have done so nobody would recognize him. So that's what we're going to be focusing on tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. So that's, that's going to be a really, really cool show. You know? Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And please, if you're watching from YouTube, do subscribe. There's, two, there's over 250 videos over there of varying topics that I think, and I think there's something, a little something for everybody over at YouTube. At least I didn't melt away, huh? It's hot in here, though, I'll tell you. Uh, again, I'll be teaching next week, next Saturday, Ghost Hunting 101. And it's not only just for, for, uh, big ghost hunt teams. It's also for, in, for indiv individuals that want to just do recreational ghost hunting. So you should check it out. Uh, that's over at the California Haunts Meetup. Just type in California California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. Alrighty. You see that ticker at the bottom? That's because uh, well, 
we're a, we work as a nonprofit, and so everything you see here, every all the equipment comes out of my pocket. If you could help us out a little bit, that'd be great. PayPal.me at California Haunts, or if you have a Venmo, type in California Haunts when you get there. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight, and I will see you all tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, and we're all going to talk about Howard Hughes. Have a good evening.